I hope you all had a really good holiday sh celebrating with people that you love. Um, we're in this in-between time right now where we just had a holiday, but we are not kicking off uh, Advent until next Sunday. And Advent, did, has anybody here grown up like or knows much about Advent? Show of hands, a few. I did not grow up in a world that recognized Advent. I grew up in church world, but a, a kind of church world that was just like, let's celebrate Christmas when Christmas hits but we don't know anything about how we get to Christmas. And it was when I was a teenager and I joined a more conservative church that um, I first learned about kind of the rhythm of preparation that happens leading up to Christmas. So Advent is uh, the four, four Sundays leading up to Christmas where we reflect on, on what it takes for us to make room in our hearts and our lives together for the coming of Jesus. And that's what we're going to kind of kick off this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time making room in our hearts for the coming of Jesus. And we're going to do that by talking about one of Jesus' absolute all-time favorite subjects. We're going to talk about money uh, I can already, and I can already feel like some of you are looking for your escape. The exits are right over here. You have to come to the front to get out. Um, uh, there are people here who are totally brand new to church. This might be your very first Sunday ever. And uh, maybe you're not even a Christian. You're just sort of dipping your toe in for the first time to see what this Jesus thing is about. And I've already confirmed your greatest fear. I knew it. They're after my money. Or maybe some of you are, uh, you've invited your friends or your family, maybe they've stuck around in town a little bit, ex a few extra days to come to church with you. You finally got somebody that you love to come to church with you and you're like cringing in your seat. Like this is the Sunday we're gonna talk about money. Yes. But if you're new to this whole church thing, let me assure you, we are not after your money. We are not interested in trying to get anything from you. Now, I don't like to talk about money. This isn't a hobby horse for me. I don't even like to talk about money with my wife, especially. <laughs> but do you know who does like to talk about money? Is Jesus, a lot. In fact, Jesus talks more about money than any other subject in the New Testament. He talks about money more than three times more often than he talks about love. He talks about money seven times more often than he talks about prayer. And in the Bible, there are more than 450 separate passages that talk about our finances, and it comprises more than 15% of the Old and New Testament scriptures. To God, money is a very big deal because it occupies an outsized place of importance in our hearts. Like we are all being formed by the voices of people all around us and in our culture, especially when it comes to issues of finance. Uh, each of us come from a different family of origin that relates to money in a different way. Some of you may have come from a family where money was really, really tight and there was a lot of anxiety around it. Some of you might have come from cultures where there was plenty and m money was just freely spent. And then, of course, we're influenced by influencers and books and advertisements that are everywhere, comparing ourselves to our neighbors. All of these things pull us in different directions when it comes to how we use our money. And let me tell you, the stats are showing that things are not working very well for us. In uh, 2023, the number one cause of divorce in America is finances, which is not anything new, still the reigning champ. Money splits couples up. 
In personal household debt in America, we have more than $17.3 trillion in debt, averaging out to around $103,000 per American household. The average new car payment in America today is $730 a month, or for a used car, $530 a month. We are doing it wrong, my friends. We are not doing so well. Some of us are dumb with our money. We spend it all and we get into debt. Some of us are terrified of money because we don't have enough of it to get by. Some of us hoard our money, obsessing about how the market is doing or how the balance of our savings is going. Some people grumble at their television about the out-of-control national debt that our, that our leaders have gotten us into, while other people rage against the injustice of income inequality. Money sparks real feelings in all of us. Pretty much everyone in the room this morning carries some kind of anxiety around finances. And in this book, in the Bible, it is full of ancient wisdom about the power of money and the way forward for us to experience freedom from all of the anxiety and all of the greed and all of the stress of our finances. And here's what the Bible teaches us about money. Some people would say that the Bible teaches us that money is evil. And the Bible actually doesn't teach that money is evil, but it does teach us that money is powerful. It may not be the thing that drives us into like egregious and awful sin, but it is not something to be played with lightly. It has a power to do something in each one of us. And for God, or God's invitation for all of us is to live free with money. It's to experience the freedom that Jesus gives. Financial freedom doesn't mean that you have so much that you don't have to worry about it. Financial freedom means living free from the anxiety that money produces because we have confidence in our Father who cares for every one of our needs. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says that as we let go of our fear of lack and we trust in him, that he will always provide for his people. It's an act of trust, and trust is an act of worship. It's a declaration to our own hearts and to the people all around us that God is God and that everything is his. And so we can take a deep breath and relax because it's all God's. We possess nothing. We are stewards or managers of God's blessing. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to go way, way, way back to the early parts of the scripture. And in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses is speaking to the people of God right before they are about to enter into a place called the promised land. They're on the cusp of a season of abundance and provision. They are about to prosper as they have never prospered before. And God gives this warning beforehand about what this prosperity will do to their hearts. And he calls them to remember the fact that they came from slavery and poverty and vulnerability. And that God rescued them and blessed them and provided for every need that they had. And so when you go into this land of abundance, make sure that you remember where you come from. This is, how, this is uh, what Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 17, says. 
Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. And so you see this trio repeated over and over again, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And these were the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. And it's hard to argue that they're not still the most vulnerable people today. The immigrant, the foster kid, the single mom. And that when you receive the provision that God is giving you and you finally have enough, remember that God doesn't just give you enough so that you can be comfortable and live at ease, but so that you can be a means of God's provision for those who are vulnerable. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Remember where you came from. You were once powerless. You were once in need. You were once without a home or a job. And I, the Lord, sustained you, and I came and I provided for you and rescued you. You see, the ugly underbelly of the American dream is the belief that whatever a person has or doesn't have is not related to their opportunity, but rather to their choices. Like, we assume that if we have enough, we deserve it because we worked hard, we earned it, and it is our right to have what we have. And if somebody doesn't have what they need, it's probably because they made bad choices that, and that this is the result of their lives. And the truth is that that is not the case. I just finished a book by Matthew Desmond. Um, uh, the title is Poverty by America. Has anybody read it? Probably not. Put it on your Christmas list. <laughs> it's a great holiday read. Um, but in it, Matthew Desmond, he explains to us that there are, there are forces, there, the way that our system is designed, it props a lot of people up in really healthy ways, but it negatively impacts so many others who are trapped in these cycles of poverty. And the Bible is clear that the church is not called to wage culture wars over who is to blame for whoever's poverty, but rather to step in and to care for and alleviate those, the needs of those who are vulnerable. And the Bible is clear for every one of us that everything that we have is a gift from God. You were once slaves. You were once like those who are vulnerable. So you can relate. You have received grace, therefore be gracious. All of life is a gift. You are not an owner. You are a manager. You are a steward of the blessings of God. This is what the whole Old Testament is getting at. God's people were to watch out for the seductive allure of wealth and possessions and to steward the blessing that God gives so that they can be a blessing to those around them. Now, I know that some of us are in the room thinking, yeah, Marshall, but I'm not rich. <laughs> like, that's true for those who are really well-to-do, but I'm not wealthy. Like, have you seen prices today? Is anybody else experiencing inflation? Do you know what it costs for rent? Do you know what my grocery bill is? Trust me, I totally get it. But here's the statistical truth that I think is important for us to, to reflect on on a regular basis in America, that if you make $43,000 per year, you are in the top 3% wealthiest people in the world today. 
And if you make $60,000 per year, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. We are wealthy. Like in America, we are rich. And I don't say that to shame us. I just say, I just say that to remind us of the fact that it's only in America where you can be in the top 1% wealthiest people in the world and feel like you're just barely scraping by. The truth is that more, most of us have been blessed beyond what any of us can comprehend. Everything that we have is a gift. He has given us abilities. He's given us relationships and networks. He's given us security and strength and wealth and time and passions. And all of this that we have is from God. Even the air that we breathe is a gift from God. And we are not owners or possessors of any of it. We are called to steward all of these gifts to be the means of God's provision and blessing for people. And notice something really important in Deuteronomy chapter 14, 20, or sorry, chapter 24, verse 19. He says, leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. God's blessing in our lives is directly connected to how we interact with those who have needs. The blessing of God flows to those it can flow through. And there's a lie that so many of us buy into in our lives, that we will eventually be a blessing for others once we have enough, once we have the security that we need, once we reach that next financial milestone. Like someday I'm going to be super generous once I get out of school or once I have that promotion, or once I pay off all of my student debt. But when we buy into this way of thinking, let me tell you, it will never feel like we have quite enough to be able to be generous. Generosity is not a matter of how much we have. Generosity is really a matter of our hearts. And it starts today. Because God is not lacking in resources, right? God doesn't lack the resources to be able to care for those who are in need. He's not after our money because he really needs our money so that he can do something good. He's after our hearts because he wants to partner with his people to see the kingdom of God spreading through our community and the rest of the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches this. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus is saying here is that our relationship to money is one of the key indicators in our lives to reveal our hearts. It shows us what's most important to us. It shows us that like, when we're being rich towards God and generous towards those who care for him, that we are reflecting the heart of generosity that God has. If you, essentially, what Jesus is saying is that if you're curious about what is happening on the inside of your heart, one of the best ways to, to pay attention to it is to just look at our bank statement. He says that you can worship money as your God or you can worship God with your money. You can't serve both God and money at the same time. And when we worship money, or we live according to the world's values regarding wealth and possessions, or just looking for the good life, we're living into a shadow kingdom of the self. 
But Jesus is calling us into a new way. In practicing generosity and contentment, we're practicing the kingdom of God. And one of my favorite quotes from R. Kent Hughes, he says, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. The generosity is how we dethrone money and we enthrone God. It's an act of reorienting our hearts towards what God cares about. Jesus is not merely calling us to not treasure things. He's not, he, he's not calling us to, to stop treasuring things. He's calling us to treasure the right things, to treasure the types of things that last for eternity, to spend our energy on the things that will last forever, not the things that will break or fall apart. Essentially what Jesus is saying in this verse is not that treasuring things on earth is evil or sinful. He's saying treasuring things on earth is just stupid. It's foolish. It's a waste of time. Jesus didn't come to crush those who spend their money on extravagances. He's just come to reorient our heart toward that which will last forever. He's inviting us to to learn how to, or to take baby steps towards investing in what matters. And in doing so, we will begin to find ourselves reflecting the nature of his kingdom. We will look more like Jesus. How are we doing? Are are we doing okay? You guys are very quiet. I'm very nervous. (laughs) Not really, I'm fine. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul reminds us that our generosity is rooted in God's generosity towards us. It's like that passage in Deuteronomy where he says that we are to remember where we came from and that God so richly took care of us every step of the way as he led us out from Egypt. Paul writes that our generosity is a reflection of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the gospel right here. Like the good news that's written from Genesis all the way through to Revelation is that God so sacrificially loved us that he emptied himself. He became poor. He died on a cross so that we who were poor and enslaved and bound in sin might become rich in relationship with him. The gospel is the extravagant generosity of the Father towards us. And in Romans 8, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If, Jesus, if, if God didn't spare Jesus, what makes you think that he isn't generous? And so when we practice generosity, when we when we like make sacrifices to care for somebody who is vulnerable and who cannot care for themselves, we are practicing the gospel. We are practicing the kingdom of God. We are reflecting our generous God who will never be outdone in generosity because he has given up everything, what is most precious to him, to win you because you are the desire of his heart. And so if you are here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus isn't trying to get anything from you. He's not trying to twist your arm into throwing a few coins into an offering plate or something like that. Way before he calls you to give anything, Jesus already gave everything. And so today, we just want you to experience the joy of relationship with God because it's all grace. It's just a gift. All right, so how should we give? Let's get practical. What's my next step? Here are some principles that have really helped me and my wife Carly on our journey of becoming more generous people. First principle, number one, 
Give first. The Bible over and over again calls, calls us to give the first fruits, making giving a priority. Have you ever noticed that when you plan on just like giving whatever's left over at the end of the month, there just tends to not be anything left over at the end of the month? Or is that just me? I don't like to look at the statements. I like to just see what I have at the end. I found that as we've, uh, and, and, and I found that as we have set our hearts to give, not what's left over, but from the first fruits, God has always taken care of our needs. And sometimes it's scary and tight, right? Like we have to cut other things out of the budget because we prioritize giving at the front end. But, but God always seems to take care of us and give us just enough to get by. A few years ago, um, Carly and I, we had a really rough year financially. Uh, Carly ended up having two surgeries and we also had a baby. So she was out of work for six months. And like, we're not one of those people that like we can take or leave her income. <laughs> like we need it, right? So six months without work was a huge hit to us financially. But we were determined not to change our giving, continuing to give according to our normal level of income. And it was hard. Like there were a lot of months that we thought about how much easier it would be to get by if we just stopped our tithe. And then at the end of the year, Carly found out that she needed to have another surgery. And we were stressing, like we didn't have any money left to be able to get through the year. We didn't have any money for Christmas, for gifts. We didn't have any money to pay for the surgery. We were like broke. And, and so uh, then one day after, you know, we were just kind of trusting God, I got a text message that apparently somebody slid a check under the door, an anonymous check, still have no idea who it was, and it was made out to Carly and I for the same amount of money that we had tied that year. And it kept us above water through Carly's surgery. And I have no idea who gave us that money. It might have been an angel of the Lord. I'm just grateful. But I, I don't tell you the story to, to say, like, like, awesome, see how great we did. It was really just that God was rich towards us as we chose to be obedient towards him. And I think that that's the biblical principle we see over and over again. As we take steps of generosity towards God, he is generous towards us. So we give from our first fruits. We give him the first portion. It's the first check that we write. Principle number two, give proportionally. That all of us have different levels of, um, are able to give at different levels according to our means. And the Bible has this like general principle of, of a tithe, which is giving 10% of your income. And there's a long conversation about whether the tithe applies to sort of New Testament Christianity or not. Um, and we don't have time to get into that. I think that the Bible is very clear. We're just meant to be generous. We're just meant to live rich towards God. And I think that the tithe is a really good place to start. But the truth is, that most of us don't, don't live with enough margin to just jump into giving 10% of our income. Like a lot of us don't have like $500 a month or whatever it is for your income to just kick over to the church. Most of us have to grow into giving. And I think that what, we just need to start with something. Start with something that might stretch you a little bit and see what it would look like to bump your giving just a little bit, you know, every couple of months to see how you, what it would take to kind of get to a level of, of generosity that you feel God is inviting you into. And some of us have been giving at a certain level of income for a long time, and we don't even feel it anymore because it's just like a check that we write. It's part of our budget. And I think that God might even be inviting us to, to go before him and ask him, do you want to stretch me? Do you want to stretch me in generosity? I'm not going to tell you what you should give, 
but I think that we should all prayerfully consider what God is calling us to give proportionally to what he has given us. Principle number three, give regularly. Make a plan for your giving. Put it in the budget. Decide how frequently you're going to give, whether every week or every paycheck or every month, and then just make a plan to make sure that it happens. Um, so what we do is we set up a, like a, a monthly gift on the website that just automatically withdraws once a month. And we do this for every organization that we give to, both in the church and outside the church. Because I don't know about you, again, I'm, I'm not like all that disciplined with really like watching every cent of that, that we have. And for us, we found that we would intend to give all the time, but we would forget the checkbook at home back in the days when you had to write checks. And we would forget to give week after week. And I always bothered me, like I want to give, but I keep forgetting to give. And so now each week or each month when I get the notice that, that our gift is going through, I just pause and thank God that he has given me the ability to be generous. I'm full of joy knowing that my offering is getting where it needs to go. If you value something, make sure it happens. Automate the things that you care about. Principle number four, most importantly, give cheerfully. God is not glorified through reluctance or being compelled or obligated by a heavy-handed preacher. God delights in us giving from the heart. He delights in us finding delight in generosity. Now, that said, most, for most of us, giving is not easy. It feels risky feels uncomfortable. It's taking a step of faith to see, you know, if God will actually make up the difference as we give money away. It may not feel cheerful at the beginning, but the Holy Spirit gives us joy as we practice the discipline of generosity. And so I think that this is actually an invitation for us to give in whatever way makes you feel cheerful. Maybe that's to automate your gift online because it just takes away the stress of whether or not you're going to give but for others, uh, some people I know like to give secretly with cash, um, which I guess defeats the purpose if I know about it. But um, they like to give secretly with cash. Or maybe you just want to dance down the aisle and throw it in the gift box in front of everybody during worship. You know, do your thing. It's fine. Whatever fills your heart with joy as you give. All right. How are we doing? You guys still with me? All right. Are you anxious about money? Like, always? Yeah, same. I think that God wants to give us freedom. And, and I, I actually want to take a second here. Like, just pause and check. How are you feeling right now about your finances as you're looking down the line of Christmas coming up and the end of the year coming up? How are you feeling? Like, not asking about giving right now. How are you feeling about your financial situation right now? I would dare to say that the Bible says that you will not feel less anxious if you just have more. I would venture to say that the Bible teaches us that it is through learning to trust God and live open-handed that we finally begin to experience freedom from the anxiety that plagues every one of us. The kingdom of God is not one of scarcity. God lacks nothing. And when we live free from the, from the love of money and we give generously, we are aligning ourselves with the value system of heaven. 
and that then we have access to the resources of heaven. That when we give of ourselves, it delights the heart of God because God loves a cheerful giver. And this is what we are invited into. Not reluctance or compulsion, not obligation, cheerful giving. It's the idea of being free from money. How many of us would love to feel free from the pull or the anxiety of finances? That's God's invitation. I don't believe that the answer is to reject money or wealth and take a vow of poverty. It's not to moralize possessions or lack of possessions. God's answer to our culture's unhealthy relationship to money and possessions is, to, is a church that is free from the love of money and possessions. It's a church that is possessed by God instead of stuff. And so this week, this next month, how will you make room in your heart for the coming of the King Jesus? How is God inviting you to reflect his generous heart by caring for the needs of other people? Who is God calling you to bless? When we dethrone money and possessions and all of the materialism that is fighting for our attention at every second of the holiday season, we are making space for Jesus. And that is my prayer for every single one of us, that this week we might slow down long enough to experience the love and grace of Jesus, our hospitable and generous King. Amen?